0: ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily
1: indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit etfstore.com for more information.
0: Growth and Innovation. Two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the Certified ETF Advisor designation by visiting cetf.org.
2: All right. So I'm sure some of you saw my 2023 ETF predictions that came out last week. I always love doing these each year. And if I do say so myself, I have a a pretty good track record here. Uh, Certainly not perfect, but I would say respectable. Joining me on the podcast this week to help keep me humble will be Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify, and we are going to go through my predictions and find out what a true ETF expert thinks about these. I always say the ETF nerds get the final say on grading me on these each year, and I'm guessing Todd would say I graded myself a little easy on my 2022 predictions, uh, specifically regarding ESG ETF closures. But uh, nevertheless, Todd and I will go through my calls for 2023. Uh, I'm very curious to hear what he thinks. And then Todd also has a few predictions of his own, or at least a few key ETF trends he's watching that we'll discuss as well. So look forward to that. I'll then be joined by Axel Merck, President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments. Uh, Axel is simply a tremendous resource on the financial markets, and his firm is behind two interesting ETFs, the Merck Stagflation ETF, ticker STGF, and the Vanek Merck Gold Trust, ticker OUNZ, O-U-N-Z uh, which by the way, one of my 2023 predictions is around gold ETFs. Uh, but Axel and I are going to discuss both of those funds. And I think more importantly, we'll hear Axel's take on the current markets and what he's watching for moving forward. And then to close this week, another ETF expert, a true ETF nerd. I'll be joined by Cynthia Murphy, Director of Research at the ETF Think Tank. Of course, ETF Think Tank is part of Tidal Financial Group, who's a white label ETF provider. So they help bring new ETF ideas to market. And I've got to tell you, I mean, that's an area that's been absolutely booming, just a fantastic spot to be in. So I'm very interested to hear what Cynthia has been seeing in terms of the types of ideas being brought to title, and where she thinks things will be heading in 2023. You'll definitely want to stick around for that conversation. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Todd Rosenbluth. Now we're joined
0: by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time.
3: $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive.
2: Todd, happy new year. Great having you back on the podcast. Happy new year, Nate.
3: Uh, all good. All good.
2: Well, tell me about this uh, huge news yesterday. TMX Group announcing a strategic investment in vetify That's a, uh, a pretty big deal.
3: Yeah, we're really excited about it. So I'm sure folks probably know of the name TMX Group. They're a publicly traded company. But in the ETF community, they are probably more well-known for the fact that they own the TSX, which was the home of the first ever ETF up in Canada, the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, They made a sizable minority investment into Vetify. It's really great to see the validation of our indexing data and advisor-centric efforts uh, to provide education and to have a global financial innovator like TMX support our vision. Uh, I would note the most important thing to me is that there's no change in our management or our vision as you teed up to transform financial services from an industry into a community, one relationship at a time. I've been posting that almost daily on LinkedIn, and I think it's starting to resonate with, with many folks. So We're really excited about TMX. I think you're going to talk more with my colleagues in the coming weeks, so I don't want to – you've got a lot of predictions that I've got to dive into, <laughs> so I don't want to go too deep.
2: I, I do. Well, no, that is exciting news, and I've got to tell you, I feel like you know every other week I see uh, some press release out of Vetify. It's just amazing what you're building there. So uh, again, congratulations on, uh, on everything going on there. So yes, let's get into my 2023 ETF predictions. And then, as I mentioned, you actually have a few ETF predictions or, or, or trends we'll highlight as well. And, and by the way, do you like my uh, hypocrisy here and that I'm always crushing these people who try to predict financial markets, right? You probably see me screenshot their bad calls and and I'll tweet them out. And now here I am making ETF predictions, which are somewhat based on the markets. That's probably not the greatest look for me.
3: Yeah, and you might not want to keep saying your crystal ball is a little foggy or broken as you make predictions using that crystal ball (laughs) and then claim that you were better than perhaps reasonable. I don't want to gloss too much over or spend too much time on 2022. But yeah, ESU was not as bad as you thought it was going to be. The closure rate was nowhere near what you might have expected. So I want to dive, I want to see if I can hook you down onto some specifics behind (laughs) some of these predictions this time.
2: Well, it's all in good fun. I, I do love doing this every year. You know, I'm just trying to think through what might happen in the world of ETFs, and also not trying to make uh, obvious call. So some of these may be a little bit easier than others, but I am trying to go out on a limb on at least a, a few of these. So with that, let's go through my calls. And what I'll do, Todd, is I'll give you my prediction. I'll add a little color and then uh, certainly would love your hot take on each of these. So my first prediction, and I would say this one is definitely a bit of a stretch, but I'm standing by it. I believe the Spider S&P 500 ETF, ticker SPY, which, by the way, turns 30 years old this month. It launched in January 1993. I believe it's going to lose its place as the largest ETF this year. So it's going to lose its ETF crown. And my guess is it'll be supplanted by the uh, Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, ticker VOO, VU, But it could also be the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF, IVV, that takes it out and just quickly here, these figures as of, uh, are as of yesterday. So current assets in SPY are about $360 billion, IVV $293 billion, and VU at $279 billion. But if you look, VU took in some $40 billion last year. IVV took in over $20 billion, and SPY lost over twenty or twelve billion, depending upon which data provider you want to uh, go with. So, what do you what do you think about this? Am I early, or do you think this is possible by the end of the year? So, I think you're a little
3: early. I think this is probably a 2024 scenario, um, and so then Spy would be 31, I guess, and slightly older. Um, yeah, we're we're certainly seeing the market share shift towards IVV, the iShares S and P 500 ETF. And Vanguard's S and P 500, VOO, and SPLG is actually pulling in some money as well. That's State Street's uh, younger brother, uh, lower cost ETF. So I think this is going to happen. Um, it's going to happen in 2024 more likely than 2023. But if some of your well, if your next prediction comes true, then yes, um, this very well could happen in 2023.
2: Yeah, and I will say, if it does happen, it will come down to the last week of the year. Like I'm definitely going to cut it close. So I I knew this was a bit of a stretch, but I I think it's possible. Like I said, I am standing by it. And and to your point, my second prediction is that I believe ETF inflows overall will surpass $1 trillion this year. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time adding color to this one because I've talked about it for probably the, the, the past month or two on the podcast. But what do you think about this one?
3: Well the last time I was on your podcast uh, I actually said this would happen too I think we did, we started to discuss it you didn't have firm predictions you were floating a few ideas by us to uh to see what people would think about it but yes I think a trillion dollars is more than achievable I think it will happen in 2023 as well you know we we had a bear market in equities uh almost a bear market in the worst year ever in fixed income and we saw over 600 billion dollars we uh, in a normal marketplace in 2021 we had over 900 billion dollars i think that's certainly achievable and a trillion dollars if we continue to see asset managers move money into the marketplace insurance companies gain comfort with the liquidity of etfs and so on so i guess the one thing i'd want to clarify with you is do do you consider conversions of a mutual fund into an etf as an inflow, I don't. Uh, no, in, in I,
2: it's a great, great question. I was not including that in my one trillion dollars.
3: Okay, I don't think Bloomberg does. I'm not sure about FactSet, which is the data that we provide. But I'm, I'm only nine months into using it, and I, it, it hasn't come down to it. But certainly, if we have conversions as part of it, that would be the bigger driver. So I guess I'm, I'm. Two for two and believing it's possible, you know, one and a half to two of, of your first ones. But we're, we're going to start to go a little downhill coming up, man.
2: Yeah, and I'll just add to, to this prediction. I really think that fixed income ETFs are going to be a key driver here. Now, if we have a decent year in the equity markets, then I think this prediction is a layup. I think we're going to see the flows into equity ETFs. But certainly, if it's a more challenging year, you know, that, that's going to make it a, a bit more difficult on the equity side. But I think fixed income ETFs are going to pick up a slack. Um, Okay, my third prediction is that uh, I believe physical gold ETFs will regain their luster. And I'm going to discuss this in more detail with uh, Axel Merck here in a bit so we can refrain from my underlying uh, market reasons around this. But here's a question I'll ask you. Let's just say that I am correct. How do you think this plays out in the ETF space? Because as I know you're well aware, there is a lot of competition in the ETF category. I I mean, I was pulling this up this morning, Todd. So you have, and I know you're well, uh, you're very familiar with all these, but let me just burn through these. You have the Spider Gold Shares, GLD. That's the grand A. There's the iShares Gold Trust, IAU. The Spider Gold Mini Shares Trust, GLDM. You have the Aberdeen Physical Gold Shares, SGOL. The iShares Gold Trust Micro ETF, ticker IAUM. The Granite Shares Gold Trust, BAR. Uh, VanEck Merck Gold Trust, ticker Ounce, The Goldman Sachs Physical Gold ETF, ticker AAAU. And then the uh, Franklin Responsibly Sourced Gold ETF, ticker FGLD. And I, I'm probably missing one or two here. If so, I apologize. But l- let's just assume my prediction is right. Do you think the flows into these ETFs come down to fees? Or, or, or how do you see this playing out?
3: Well, actually, I want to. I, I think you were giving me a pass on this. I want to come back to whether or not your prediction is going to be right by asking you, what is your prediction? Regaining luster. Let's give me an. What's a number that you would consider regaining luster on? Uh, because
2: yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, three so-
3: billion dollars of net outflow. So is is regaining luster five billion of net inflows? Is that a, is that a fair? bogey to
2: aim for? I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, making this prediction, It was looking at last year, we did have those 3 billion plus in outf- outflows from physical gold ETFs. That surprised me, given that the price of gold was only down about 1% versus, you know, 18% plus down on the S&P. We all know the storing bonds down 13%. And so I was a little surprised that gold ETFs saw outflow. So my prediction is, I guess, twofold. Uh, a, yes, we're going to see positive inflows into physical gold ETFs. If we want to put a number on that, I think $5 billion is fine. But also that uh, I think we're going to see positive returns. And again, not investment advice. Everybody do your own homework. Uh, th- this is just for fun. But I just think this is a year where where gold really uh, regains uh, a, a place in investors' portfolio and I think performs admirably uh, in the, in the environment that I think we're going to see this year.
3: So I'm on a bit of a winning streak. In the fact that I finally won a bet against Eric Balchunas for the ESG products surviving longer than they'd expect, and I'm feeling relatively okay about an ongoing one with Capital Group or focus on Capital Group that expires. The bet ends in February, so I will take the under. Let's do the. I'll do the five billion dollar mark if you're willing to do that, and I'll take the under. In terms of net inflows for 2023 for gold ETFs, I, I I'll love tell you it. why. While you then, de- well, let me ask you: Will you agree to it? And then I'll tell you why. Yes,
2: I, I agree. What are we putting on the line?
3: So let's do well, Let's do the next time in. To- I guess in early 2024. So let's let the bet play out, and let's have dinner together in in New York. Assuming you're coming to New York, uh, I think you're more likely to be in New York than I'm going to be in Kansas City. But uh, <laughs> let's do dinner. You're on. Okay. So here's my, and I want to, I, you've got two other predictions and I've got a couple of things I want to make sure we get into as well. But uh, to quote your piece back to you, it was an environment where the economy was slowing. Well, in 2022, inflation remained sticky. Uh, that should be a good one for gold, except it wasn't in 2022. So I don't. I think inflation is going to be more muted in 2023. I think Investors have preferred a more diversified approach to commodity ETFs. We saw PDBC, the Invesco Optimum Yield Diversified Commodity Strategy ETF, pulled in nearly $2 billion last year while the gold ETFs, as you mentioned, were pulling or losing money. So I think it's going to be a tough gain. Uh, I know you've got a guest coming up that's going to make the case for gold ETF investing. I just think investors have moved to other Investment styles within the commodity marketplace,
2: but but I guess to your earlier point, that's that's what I'm basing my prediction on. In that last year, I feel like gold ETF should have had a much better year, and they didn't. And I think one of the reasons, at least performance wise, we obviously had a stronger U.S. dollar. I I think if the economy does slow down, uh, I think we could see the dollar weaken a little bit, which would be supportive of gold. Um, also, I think inflation is going to remain elevated, but you know, I think the consensus is at some point maybe it's the back half of the year, uh, rates start coming back in, or at least the Fed pauses. I think that could be uh, supportive of gold as well. So um, one other thing I'll add, just while I'm thinking about it too, is crypto. Everything we saw in crypto this year, um, I think over the past several years, investors have looked to crypto as that digital gold, at least some investors, right? I, I mentioned before, it's a smaller pool of capital. I just wonder if some of that money uh, will be coming out of crypto and looking for actual gold, not not digital gold. So we'll see, but um, all right, let's get to my fourth prediction. And uh, speaking of crypto, I'm not gonna give much background on this one. I, I feel like i beat this into the ground, but the prediction is still no spot Bitcoin ETF. <laughs> I, I just don't see the SEC... Uh, approving one this year. Now, I will caveat that by saying, I've been wrong on this entire thing for a long time, right? I've predicted several times in the past that a, uh, a Bitcoin ETF would be approved. So uh, fair warning to listeners. But I just feel like until the SEC has regulatory oversight of crypto exchanges, a spot Bitcoin ETF isn't coming to market, period and a story. So I'm assuming there's no disagreement from you on that one?
3: Yeah, there's no disagreement. I mean, when the SEC comes out and says repeatedly they're concerned about fraud and manipulation with cryptocurrency and with Bitcoin in particular, and we have fraud and manipulation, I find it hard to believe they're going to be more comfortable with having a Bitcoin in the form of an ETF. Um, So until we have new leadership at the SEC, I don't think we're going to have a Bitcoin ETF.
2: All right, my last uh, prediction, and this is the one that I would say caused the biggest stir on Twitter, there was a a decent amount of back and forth on this. I believe Morgan Stanley will be 2023's ETF issuer of the year. And let me just clarify this a little bit, which I should have done a better job uh, of in my blog. And and by the way, all of these predictions and my color around them are posted at uh, ETFeducator.com. But Todd, when I say uh, ETF issuer of the year, I'm not saying who's going to bring in the most assets or who has the best performance. I'm just saying, when we look back at the end of the year, who will we all say exemplified ETF industry success? So, for example, last year, I would argue that was probably Capital Group, right? A new issuer who came onto the scene. Uh, they now have $6 billion or, or whatever. They, they, they didn't bring in the most... Uh, in assets, but I think as I look back on the year, that's the ETF issue of year. New player came on the scene. I think if you look at 2021, maybe you could point to Dimensional, and and what they did. I think certainly Ark Invest in in 2020. So I realize this prediction is a bit uh, nebulous, but uh, what, what what do you think about Morgan Stanley?
3: So yeah, I do think your prediction is a bit nebulous so that you can give yourself a positive grade at the end of 2023 20, <laughs> and into early me. 2024 so sure and i'm not going to ask you to to give a number on this unless you feel comfortable i would agree with you capital group was probably the firm i would have referenced in 2022 for the reasons you talked about they entered the marketplace they made it with splash six billion dollars and counting um i think they're gonna they being morgan stanley is going to be relatively successful with their esg and likely fixed income etfs that come to marketplace in the coming months they're going to be at exchange, uh, as are many other asset managers, and I think they're going to have a notable presence at the conference. And I think that's going to be a nice uh, opportunity for them to educate investors that this is a conference down in Florida that I'll see you at. Um, I think that if I'm choosing who might be the ETF issuer of the year, and it isn't Vanguard, because if, if Vanguard is going to, Vu uh, is going to topple Spy, that means they had a pretty darn good year. Uh, in 2023, but let's take the iShares and Vanguard off the table. I'm actually looking towards JP Morgan, mm. uh, who is likely to pass $100 billion in overall assets in 2023, has more conversions underway. They've got the two largest active ETFs in JEPI, JEPI which turns three years old in 2023. God, God bless this company's success uh, with the product, and then JPSD, the, the ultra-short product. So I think Morgan Stanley is going to have some success. I think we're going to be talking about it because ESG is going to be in better shape than people probably realize in 2023. Um, I don't know if I would end up being the ETF issuer of the year in some imaginary awards program you and I are part of. But they'll have a good year.
2: Well, and, uh, you know, it's a learning experience for me. I think that I probably need to start putting some hard numbers uh, on some of these predictions, which I agree with. And I always say, again, the ETF nerds get the final say on grading these. So I don't want to make these easy and give myself out. I ran a Twitter poll asking like in terms of assets, what would Morgan Stanley have to do this year to be ETF issuer of the year? 24% said between three and five billion, and 47% said five billion plus. And so, you know, maybe the number's somewhere around there. I guess I need to think about that and, and put something out there. But um, Todd, enough of my predictions. I do want to spend just a few minutes talking about some of your uh, predictions, or again, at least some of the key trends you're tracking. And we're going to have to go rapid fire here. But I will note, if people want more detail on any of these, you've written uh, excellent pieces on all of these recently. They are posted at ETFtrends.com. So, um, again, let's go rapid fire here. The first one is that you believe advisors have rediscovered the merits of value investing, obviously, after years of outperformance by growth. However, you also noted because of the changes in the markets and uh, ETF rebalancing, advisors might want to look under the hood of both value and growth ETFs because they might be surprised at what they'll find. Do you want to uh, briefly comment on that? Sure. So I'm
3: sure people know we do a whole bunch of surveys. We have data on what advisors' thoughts are on a whole range of different topics. And so I wrote a piece uh, because we use data that said that advisors were choosing value to be a stronger performer than growth or even growth in income. Uh, And so 57% of advisors thought value would be the better of those three uh, types of strategies. So value, I guess, core, and then growth, if we're going to think about it that way. Um, And because value was such a strong performer in 2022. But as as you referenced, the iShares S&P 500 value ETF. The iShares SP 500 Pure Value, I'm sorry, the Invesco S&P 500 Pure Value ETF RPV um, that now owns Chevron and ExxonMobil and United Health. Um, I'm sorry, they no longer do, the, the growth versions do. I'm sorry, if we could edit this out, I would love to. The iShares SP 500 Growth ETF, the Invesco SP 500 Pure Growth ETF RPG uh, have Chevron, ExxonMobil, and United Health. Whereas the growth ETFs that have historically uh, used to have uh, companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Meta alone, those are now value stocks. So if you're betting on value, you've got to believe that Amazon and Microsoft and Meta are going to be stronger performers in 2023 than they were in 2022. I don't know that a lot of people actually believe that, even though they're buying value ETFs.
2: Hey, Todd, everyone knows the rules on this podcast. There's no editing. We, we don't edit on this podcast. So that was not a rapid-fire response to the question. So maybe I should just edit out that whole thing if I'm going to do it. So, all right, quickly here, another area uh, you're watching is Smart Beta ETF. So you noted how they regained favor in 2022, and you think that will continue this year. And I like this call because – It felt like some people were writing off the smart beta category as a passing fad, right? That it was just some sort of marketing angle or something like that. And I know a lot of people don't like the term, but I think some people just thought the smart beta category was uh, what was dead for. But the changing market environment we saw last year, that's been beneficial for a number of smart beta ETFs. Uh, And my understanding is you think the momentum will continue here, Correct.
3: I do, pun unintended, but instead of momentum being the the stronger performer, we've seen dividends and value and low volatility ETFs be very popular. I'm looking towards the multi-factor ETFs, ETFs like OUSA or LRGF or QUS. Uh, Those all outperformed in 2022, the S&P 500. It's a nice alternative to your active mutual funds. You get multi-factors. And so I think... We're going to see smart beta continue to live on. Uh, It's not dead. It's actually doing quite well.
2: All right, two more here real quick. The first one is that you believe defined outcome ETFs will continue gaining uh, significant traction, uh, another category that had just a stellar 2022. Give us some quick thoughts around that.
3: Yeah, you know, Innovator ETFs is probably the leader within this space. Um, Their asset base doubled in 2022 to $11 billion. It couldn't have been a better year. Uh, for these type of risk reduction, but still be invested in the market type of product. So PGen, uh, which is the Innovative U.S. Equity Power Buffer ETF, was down only 5% in 2022 versus an 18% decline for the S&P 500. But I actually am intrigued by some of these other ETFs. So KGen, K-J-A-N, which is the U.S. Small Cap Power Buffer ETF. It's the one that's tied essentially to the Russell 2000 ETF. That was down just under 8% in 2022 versus a 20% loss for the iShares Russell 2000 ETF. So I think these products are going to continue to gain traction. Nobody wants to lose money. Uh, And I think these products fit perfectly into an advisor's portfolio in a risk reduction effort.
2: All right, last one I have here in yet another article you published last week. You've been extremely busy. So you highlighted Harbor moving three of their ETFs onto the floor of the uh, New York Stock Exchange. And uh, from your piece, it sounds like you think this might become a thing, that we'll see more of this. So any quick comments on that?
3: Yeah, and they followed in the footsteps of of BOND bond, the the PIMCO active uh, ETF that was the first one uh, to move to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You have a designated market maker. It improves the liquidity. It makes it easier for the open and closing uh, of the ETFs. Relatively less liquid ETFs that are actively managed from some of these new entrants. It just makes sense. Again, I, I don't benefit from this if companies move to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, but I think we're going to have a dozen of these, uh, maybe within the, within the next year, that have moved. We have four so far, so I think we're going to continue to see uh, more of these products. Um, and as I, in the piece that I wrote, I think there'll be enough to actually have a, a football game on the on the. Outside the New York Stock Exchange at Wall Street, maybe you'll come uh, to New York. We can we can celebrate the the victory I have for for gold ETFs. Um, then by playing football uh, in the snow outside the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs>
2: hey, uh, speaking of the New York Stock Exchange, I, I should mention that on next week's podcast, I will be joined by uh, NYSE's Mo Spark. So we're going to talk actually about this topic in more detail what the real benefits are of having these ETFs moved to the floor. But, Todd, great stuff as always this week. Uh, I'm guessing the next time we chat, we will be down in Miami uh, at Exchange, only a few weeks away. So look forward to that, and thank you for joining me.
3: Thanks a lot. Look forward to seeing you and, and all of the listeners down in Florida for a Exchange Conference in early February.
2: That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. My next guest is Axel Merck, President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments, who's an investment advisory firm with over a billion dollars in assets under management. They're also behind two ETFs, the Merck Stagflation ETF, ticker STGF, that launched last May. And then the Eck Merck Gold Trust, ticker ounce O-U-N-Z, which that ETF actually lets investors take physical delivery of gold in exchange for their shares. We'll certainly get into that. Uh, Axel is now on the line with me from Palo Alto, California. Axel, welcome to the podcast.
4: Great to be with you, Nate.
2: All right, so it's interesting. You launched this uh, stagflation ETF in May of last year. And now here we are in January of 2023. And at least from my perspective, it does feel like stagflation is sort of the base case, right? Just about every analysis that I'm seeing expects inflation to remain elevated and economic growth to remain weak, if not negative. To start here, just give us some background on the launch of this ETF. And I'm curious what you saw back when you were developing this idea when not everyone had stagflation on their uh, bingo card well and and not only
4: when we launched it right as you're well aware it takes many months to to get an an etf off the ground and and why would we launch an etf when the stagflation is going to be so short and inflation is going to be so short and so forth the 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 challenge with a stagflationary shock and that's that's kind of a is that central banks are very ill-equipped to deal with them and that the politically attractive reaction to a stagflationary shock it's counterproductive. The, one of the best-known ones, maybe, is that when when production doesn't work to give people a stimulus check, right? Uh, writing checks does not increase the supply of goods, um, and and this happens throughout, right? It happens with with um, wage negotiations, happen with other things, and the the reason why the stagflationary period of the 1970s um, really lasted over a decade is because of these continuous policy mistakes that happened along the way. And uh, if you talk to central bankers, they say they're so much smarter. That may well be the case, although I doubt <laughs> that. But the key thing is we're still human. And and as we saw last year, most things didn't work. And so we figured we need additional diversifiers in the market so that investors have more tools to, to deal with the period that's that's ahead.
2: And we'll get into the ETF here in just a moment, but is a stagflationary environment still your base case, or has anything at all changed w- with your views on this? Well,
4: yes, we're in a mess, right? And 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 so we got a higher for longer fit. The, the, the Fed doesn't quite know what they want to do. They haven't created a new framework. The only thing they know is they want to be gradual and stop at some point. But the, the challenge is you don't get out of the, this this inflationary world um unless there's a fundamental shift on how the Fed operates. And by all means, the year over year comparisons on inflation are gonna look better. Um but then what? Right? The one thing Bernanke wrote in the in book that he published, he, he wrote it before the pandemic and then he scrambled to, to put some things in there for a stagnation environment. But what he rightfully points out is once inflation is high, it's no longer linear. And, and so it will jump around. So for a few months, we'll be feeling great. And then it's going to whack us again. And so you've got to be on the lookout. And just like with, with anything investing, um, it's about taking scenarios into account, taking risks into account, and then figuring out how to deal with those possibilities.
2: Okay, so let's discuss how the Merck stagflation ETF is designed. Uh, I know this has a trend-following component. Perhaps explain that and then what exactly this ETF holds.
4: Well, the, the key thing about this is this is this is investing in components that may do well in a speculation environment. We have a core allocation to tips, and we will we'll talk about tips hopefully in, in a bit because I think most investors misunderstand tips. And, and the reason I mention this though, is, it, think of it: this is this is a diversifier, and a diversifier, notably for for the bond allocation of portfolio, with a kick. The kick, so to speak, is that in a quote-unquote normal environment, it should behave all right, but in a stagflation environment, it should be extraordinarily well. And, and so we have a qualification to tips, and then we, we also invest in, in, in oil, gold, and real estate. And as you point out, there's is a, is a trend-following methodology that rounds it out, notably because in the 1970s, a trend-following methodology worked particularly well. But even without those components, um, the key idea is that those performance and uh, those those components should do well over time in in a stagflationary environment.
2: Yeah, and I'll mention for listeners if you look at how this ETF is actually getting the exposure. Again, it, it us it is through other ETFs. So on the tips exposure, it's SEHP. On the real estate exposure, it's V and Q. On the gold exposure, uh, it's ounce, which we'll talk about here in a moment. And then on the uh, oil exposure, ticker DBO. Um, Actually, you mentioned TIPS, and I, I was looking at performance this morning uh, for the CTF, and since its inception last year, it has underperformed the S&P 500 by uh, three three or four points. Is that because of the the TIPS exposure? It, because on the surface, I think people would look at what the CTF does, and they would have expected it to outperform over this time frame. So, So can you speak to the performance a little bit?
4: Well, let's talk about tips first, maybe, because I think that's where the greatest misunderstanding is. When you buy tips, you lock in real interest rates, and not the short-term ones, but longer ones, um, seven, eight, nine years, depending on on the tips that one is invested in. And what happened last year is that we had an extremely tough Federal Reserve, and so that pushed those longer-term real interest rates higher. Um, and so we're currently on, on a 10-year basis at about a little over 1.3% real interest rates. So if you believe that the Fed will push those real interest rates further, then you may want to stay away from TIPS. But if you think that the Fed cannot be that hawkish forever, then it might be a good time to get into TIPS or into, obviously, the taxation ETF, if you like, the, the rest of the philosophy. And, and I would encourage everybody on, on Merck Investments, we, we have a, an analysis of how TIPS work, and many people have told us that that really has helped them to understand TIPS. So that's kind of as a baseline. And then, of course, the other components are, are gold, oil, and, and real estate. And you mentioned earlier we invest in other ETFs. And, and part of it is, as, as you may well know, investing in, in something like oil. This is not oil companies, but oil itself. Um, is not trivial, and so rather than trying to convince the market that we have the best algorithm how to invest in oil, we do utilize another ETF, um, and the entire package in, in, in our assessment is, is very, very cost effective for what it offers. But um, the the reason why the performance was was lukewarm, obviously, last year was because of the particular components haven't performed so well. The 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 idea with any. Rules-based ETF is, of course, that looking forward, what is it that you believe in? And, and as I pointed out, right, we're not competing um, with, the, with the S&P, but, but more with, on the tip side of things. And, and there, it's really what is your outlook on those and is there a way to round that out? Uh, some people are saying, oh, why don't you invest 100% in your whatever favorite thing? Well, the point is not to, to have a hole-in-one. The point is to, to have a diversifier and to take a step back on this maybe and go back to speculation year period. Um, in the 1970s, nothing really worked really well um, over the, the 1970s. What you really wanted to invest in was the CPI but the CPI itself you cannot invest in. And if you look at like equity markets on a real basis, meaning net of inflation, um, the equities didn't do well. And so, again, a stagflation ETF provides a way to diversify. Um, and the, the tips with the rounding out with these commodity components and, and real estate is, is, in our view, one of the, the easier ways for an investor to, to add diversification to a portfolio, mitigating some of the stagflationary risks.
2: In terms of adding that diversification to a portfolio, when you look at STGF, do, do you view this as uh, an alternative to, say, a traditional fixed income position? Or how do you see this being used specifically in a portfolio?
4: Yes, we do see that as a fixed income supplement or, or, or substitute and and again that's also based on the return profile right some people are saying oh why do you have such a large tips allocation well commodities are notoriously volatile right and so you want to tame that down a little bit and and mentioned trend following earlier right we have this core position in tips but then on the commodity side in real estate each one of these components can vary between five and fifteen percent and and so that allows a ramping up and the scaling down, depending on how these components are doing, but there will always be a very substantial comp- um, uh, base allocation, so to speak, to TIPS.
2: Okay, so that's the Merck Stagflation ETF, again, ticker STGF. Let's move on and talk about the Vanek Merck Gold Trust, ticker OUNCE, great ticker, um, which, by the way, Axel, can you explain the relationship with uh, Eck here?
4: yeah so we launched the the Vanekberg Gold trust in 2014 and then a few years later we partnered up with Vannec on the marketing side so we're the sponsor it's our ETF but we have a very close working relationship mostly on the on the distribution and the marketing side um obviously they they are a bigger shop than we are, and they have a lot of traction there um, what's as, as you find out but right, the, the unique feature about this is that like the other physical gold ETS, we invest in physical gold, but we do provide that delivery feature. And anybody who has looked into that, that is not trivial. Indeed, we have a delivery process. Uh, anybody else who has tried it, there, there was an Australian um, shop that tried it at some point, they, they left the business again because they didn't quite know how to do this this properly, now at, at least. And, and so uh, we are passionate that you have that feature, And it's really designed for the person who wants the assurance that the gold is there. Most investors don't take delivery, but they like that feature. And by the way, one of the the nice side effects is that this is a a, a grantor trust. So you own a pro rata amount of the gold, depending on how many shares you own. And when you take delivery of the gold, that in itself is not a taxable event. And that means if your, your shares appreciate um, you can take delivery without that in itself um, triggering tax event. Obviously, if you take it out of a retirement account, um, there, there may be taxes due, but that's not because of you're not selling the gold, so to speak.
2: Just high level, what does that process actually look like to take delivery of the physical gold? Do you go online, file an application, and then are, are the shares provided uh, back to the uh, the sponsor and gold sh- shipped out? I mean, just high level, what does that process look look like?
4: Yes. So you go to, to our website, uh, there is an online calculator that tells you how much gold you have, and then there's an application. And it, it's, a, it's a very smooth process in the sense of you, if you go through the, that process where you pretty much just say, hey, um, this is, these are the shares I got, and this is what I want to have, and this is how you get it. And, and, and by the way, uh, most investors do not. Have an interest in having the London bars that we hold that, that any institutional holder of gold has, and so what we do is we facilitate a swap into coins. Um, now those are obviously dependent on market demand on, on market supply, um, whereas the London bars are always available. but during the pandemic, for example, we facilitated deliveries when most people didn't even have access to coins. We're working with a what we call a dealers dealer. And, and through that, we're able to facilitate deliveries. But what can happen is that um, the, these coins tend to trade at the premium. And so what you could do is when the premiums are high, you, you buy the gold ETF and then you wait for the premiums to come down and take delivery later. And so you've locked in the price of gold so to speak. Now, again, um, it is about the feature, right? If you just want to buy a coin, it's it's much faster to, to just go to a coin dealer and be done with it. Um, the, the challenge a in gold investor has is, the moment you want to have a more substantial amount invested in gold, what do you do with it? How do you keep it secure? And uh, this, the gold ETF an expense ratio of 25 basis points. So it's a very competitive way of storing gold. Um, the key thing we have seen uh, versus our competitors is that we tend to attract a more long-term investor. Um, we we do get one to two deliveries a month. Um, we can ramp that up pretty quickly if there was more demand. But the point is that people like the assurance that they could take delivery if and when they wanted to. And that tends to um, get the trader to the other products and, and give us the um, the, the more longer term investor.
2: Axel, just a few minutes left here. In terms of the investment thesis for gold moving forward, and I should note, I, I was talking about this a little bit earlier on the podcast. So one of my 2023 ETF predictions is that I think physical gold ETFs are going to have a, a, a huge year. And I think that's both uh, flows into the products. But I also think, you know, gold is set up pretty well because I, I think to what we were saying earlier, we could be in an environment where economic growth slows Perhaps that pressure is a U.S. dollar Uh, inflation, I think, is going to remain elevated. We also clearly still have geopolitical issues out there. Uh, It's possible stocks have another tough year. All of that seems rather positive for gold, in my opinion. So anything you would add to that in, in terms of the investment case for gold moving forward?
4: Well, first, yes, we do see increased interest, both in terms of volume. We're talking earlier in the year here, and we already had two creations. And so that that supports that that notion in, in the ETF. Um, as far as the, the gold investors concerned, um, I see, I group them into three different buckets. Um, one is the investor concerned about the erosion of the purchasing dollar of, of the dollar. The second one is the diversification investor. And the third one is the trend follower. A trend follower, they love a trend. Um, when the price of gold moves, they'll jump on board. Those investors are mostly went to the meme stocks and other things, uh, cryptocurrencies and whatnot. Um, so we've seen those not as much around. The diversification investor was a tad disappointed last year. Um, because, quote-unquote, everything was correlated, although gold eventually did quite all right in that context. Um, Those correlations tend to break down, and so we see a lot of those investors coming back in. And then, of course, the the, the traditional gold bud, gold investors concerned about the purchasing power of the dollar, um, goes back to what we discussed earlier about real interest rates, right? The, The biggest competitor to this brick that doesn't pay any interest is if you get a real yield on your cash. And, and so it is quite notable that even with all the Fed's action, gold has not plunged, right? And, and, and a lot of that is, of course, forward-looking, that the gold investor doesn't believe that the, the Fed can be that tough as it's priced in for an extended period. And so if you believe that we've kind of reached peak hawkishness, then gold is something that you might want to consider. Um, you mentioned geopolitical uncertainty. That's a driver. I don't like that as much as, as a motivator to buy gold because people get used to crises. And so, yes, the price of gold might might spike when you have a terrorist attack there. But that tends to fizzle out quickly. And unfortunately, we, we get things used to things like a war and, and other things as well. So I, I tend to focus on, on the other bigger areas.
2: You mentioned uh, crypto. Do you think crypto has impacted gold's behavior at all over the past several years? Because you know, you look at gold's performance last year, relatively speaking, you know, it, was a, it was a very good year, only down about 1%. But I just feel like gold should have performed better over the past several years. And I wonder if crypto was store, uh, sort of stealing investor mindshare here. So investors maybe were allocating to quote unquote digital gold instead of actual gold. Do you think there's anything at all to that or is the overall pool of capital in crypto just too small to matter?
4: well i take exception to the word uh, digital gold but to your product <laughs> question um the the um the the investor the, the the group that i has moved from gold to digital assets was the was the speculator mm-hmm. right so if anything the impact had been that the volatility in gold has been less than it might have otherwise been because the um during the boom phase and the digital asset space um, those uh, those investors on steroids had other avenues to play out, and 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 yes, it might have meant that the price of gold could have gone up higher, but also be more volatile and then plunge down more. And and so in both directions, it, it may uh, has had an impact. Now, obviously, as everybody knows, right, the the asset space has had a rough time, and and so who knows where that speculator is going to go next? Um, in in there, I think the Fed does play a role. I do think that um, the speculator is going to be muffled for a little bit. Um, then again, right? Um, the price of gold and gold miners as well, by the way, they tend to do well early um, in, in this cycle. So as a before the death of the recession is hit, if you look at 2008 and other cycles as well, um, gold and gold miners it bottomed out much, much earlier. And I think that's part of the reason why you say gold is going to have a good year. I tend to agree with that. Um, that the market is looking forward, and if we have, especially if we have a deeper recession, equities may not perform well. Uh, traditional um, S&P type of equities, but but the price of gold will look ahead to the easing because gold is just so much more sensitive um, to to a pivot, so to speak, at the Fed. Whereas if we if we do over tighten at the Fed um, from an economic point of view. Um, those equities will do poorly. So it comes back again to diversification, right? Um, gold, a, a well-known diversifier. Zaxflation ETF, a bit more refined and diversifier. And then uh, investors want to have a toolbox, just like central banks have their tools.
2: Well, Axel, really enjoyed the uh, conversation this week. Tremendous insight. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. That was Axel Merck, President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments. I'm now joined by Cynthia Murphy, director of research for the ETF Think Tank, who's what I would say is the educational arm of Title Financial Group, who themselves is a white label ETF provider. So they help bring new ETF ideas to market and they can handle everything soup to nuts, which we'll uh, talk about. But ETF Think Tank, they offer all sorts of uh, ETF thought leadership and research and data tools. They also help connect investors directly to ETF issuers. I really love what they're building there. And Cynthia is now on the line with me from Chicago. Cynthia, so great to have you back on the podcast.
1: Hey, Nate. I'm super excited to be
2: here. Always fun. Yes, I I have been looking forward to this. So look, uh, we're going to focus on the white label ETF business. But for listeners who are unfamiliar, I thought it might be good just to start by talking a bit more about the ETF think tank. So, So what will people find when they go there?
1: Yeah, so, so The Tank is kind of a, a really cool little business that started about 10 years ago, and it really is a research content engine, and so we are out there learning about all new products, talking about them. Um, uh, we have our own database, uh, so we're crunching numbers, and we're really in this kind of research due diligence mode all the time, really aimed at financial advisors who will come to us, and we, we like to say we're your source of ETF ideas. And it's really to, to help them figure out what's the best product for the problem they're trying to solve. And so on the other side of it, what we do is we have all these relationships with the issuers throughout the ETF ecosystem, and we are connecting allocators to the right product to, you know, as best as we can. So we really are a research engine that foster relationships, uh, on the other side so that at the end of the day, the right product ends up in the right hands for the, the best results possible. So it, it's really kind of a fun, content-driven networking platform uh, where everybody wins in the end if we, if
2: we do it right. <laughs> well, and I think to your last point, what I like about it, it really is a good due diligence vehicle or mechanism, in, especially for products that maybe aren't on every investor's radar, so if you want to dig underneath the hood of, of some of the smaller ETFs out there, some of the more innovative ETFs out there, uh, ETF Think Tank will help investors and, and specifically advisors do that. So I, I, I love that. Um, OK, let's talk about the white label ETF business. And I think a lot of uh, ETF Prime listeners are certainly familiar with this high level. But, but just for some quick background, how would you describe what Tidal Financial Group does?
1: So the, the White Label Jeff Business title being one of them, uh, there's several, as you know. You know, Alpha Architect is another big one, Exchange Trader Concepts. And I think you know, just this year we saw the news that Goldman Sachs is getting into the White Label business. It really is, if you think about it, is you know, somebody who wants to bring an ETF to the market and they want to outsource all of the work that goes into doing that. So uh, I like to think of there's many ways to describe it, but I like to think of white label as kind of like a services stack. So you know, do you need you need a trust? You need a board of advisors. You need uh, legal and compliance. Uh, you need a trading desk, uh, portfolio management, sub advisory services, marketing, sales. So all these white label providers have different mixes of different services they provide, and title being one of them. Uh, you can come and you can basically outsource everything. You bring your ETF idea and you bring your ETF brand because the characteristic of a white label provider is that the ETFs have your brand, not the white label uh, provider's brand. Um, and uh, and in the case of title, you can also get uh, funding uh, the seed uh, in some cases where the, the company becomes a partner in your product if, if you know it's something that makes sense. So it really is a services and it's kind of each client is an individual mix of services that they need or that they want so it's a a platform that you know requires a lot of it's a high touch type of business it's a lot of work type of business there's not a lot of automation that goes into it because each client is different the needs are different but uh, it's basically a a way to outsource your your ETF business um, in, in an easy easy solution
2: All right. So you know me, what I'm really interested in hearing about are the trends you're currently seeing in this space, which, by the way, my perception is being a white label ETF provider right now, that might be one of the best places to reside in the entire ETF ecosystem. It's just the perfect place given uh, all the interest around launching new ETFs, which which I guess let's actually start there. How much interest is title actually seeing right now? What, what, What does that look like? So you will be
1: amazed to know, uh, I was just looking at these numbers yesterday, that in the fourth quarter of last year, the number of ETF leads on Tidal grew like 80% versus the previous quarter.
4: Wow.
1: Uh, it's been uh, a phenomenal pace of growth in terms of ETF leads. So at, at Tidal, and I, my understanding is that, uh, you know, Alpha Architect, ETC, it's roughly the same experience um, if you talk to those guys, which we do often. Um, which is, as a side note, I think it's so cool. Like, we talk about the ETF industry as being actually the friendly pay- place on Wall Street to work. You know, white labelers, they refer business to each other. They support each other. It's kind of a cool community of making sure the right product lands in the right platform. But anyway, Tidal um, gets about, uh, I'd say, like 50 new ETF leads a month. So we're averaging more than one a day of new people coming through the door and say, I want to launch an ETF. Here's my idea. And, and that's really strong pace if you think about how many ETFs we have in the market and, and how many we see launch. Now, that's new leads. You know, that doesn't mean new launches. Launches are far fewer. But the, you know, idea, the product innovation machine is running full steam in the ETF business. Everyone has a cool idea they want to bring to the table.
2: By the way, I want to mention to your point on working with Alpha Architect. I love that because I know it's cliche, but we see this all throughout the ETF space that a, a rising tide does lift all boats. I think that's the mentality, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So so y- y- you mentioned in terms of all these leads coming across uh, titles plate. I mean, do, do you have any sense, just percentage-wise, out of all of those leads, how many actually end up launching? Uh,
1: I'd say maybe 10%. Um, okay. it's, a, it's a small percentage, and it's what's interesting is is not so. In the case of title, they go through a big assessment, you know, all these questions to figure out, you know, how well baked the idea is, is you know the the capital support there, all these questions that are key to the success of a launch. And uh, what's interesting is is that you know ten percent of the ETFs that come to us actually launch uh, on the title side. Uh, it's really not because title is turning people away. It's because, you know, I think a lot of advisors are come, come to, to have these conversations and they don't realize all that goes into it. They don't realize the amount of financial support they have to have. They don't realize the real competitive landscape. And so a lot of them decide to wait, go back, and, and bake that idea more. You will see, you know, typically a no-go happens when, it's a fund that's either too similar to something that's already on the platform because a white label provider really succeeds when the ETFs on their platform succeed. If you're having competing funds that are very similar to each other, it's really hard to to help both succeed equally. So if it's something that I would say overlaps maybe more than eighty percent to something existing in the platform, those get sent to, you know, another platform or referred somewhere else. But typically most of the no's happen at the the entrepreneur, the advisor level where they're like, wait a second, this is a bigger thing than I thought it would be. So I need more time to to figure this out.
2: If we were to dig just a little bit deeper, where specifically are you seeing interest? Is it mutual fund to ETF conversions? Is it uh, RIAs looking to launch their strategies in an ETF wrapper, Uh, SMA conversions, all of the above? Where's the interest primarily coming from?
1: Yeah, I would say the bulk of it is coming from the RIA um, space, and it really is a tax alpha story. So it is amazing, Nate, that, you know, 30 years into this industry, these conversations with advisors, how many are baffled and don't understand the tax efficiency of ETS? Uh, You know, we, we get questions all the time, like, really, you can actually do that? You can actually, you know, wash away these capital gains over time and custom baskets and all that, that good stuff. And uh, so, you know, which always makes me think about the ETF Institute, which is a great plug for it here. Like, there's so much education needed out there on ETF still. So, um, it's, it's I, I love the Institute for that. But anyway, um, it's amazing how it really is a tax efficiency story. And once they get it, everybody wants to come and launch ETFs. And, Conversion it could be the biggest story we see uh, for a long time. I, I heard Wes on an interview recently talking about, you know, 90% of alpha access business this year is going to be conversion. Um, we are getting some of that, too, on the title side, a lot of it. Um, it really is that structural alpha that ETFs bring and tax alpha being the biggest thing. And I think the market environment, too, is pushing that. I mean, if we saw the 2022, the big story about the biggest rift ever between neutral fund outflows and ETF inflows, and a lot of that is this market environment. You're taking losses on your performance, and you're still realizing capital gains from people who left the fund had held for too long um, and had gains on it. So I think that tax lesson, it became really, really clear in, in a difficult market environment. So the conversion story is really big, a lot of SMAs to ETFs. Uh, mutual funds now to ETFs, hedge funds, um, all of the above.
2: What about the ETFs themselves, like the strategies? Is there any commonality there? Any trends you're seeing in terms of the strategies themselves, the actual types of ETFs?
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think the complexity is the new name of the game. Um, it's. I'm always amazed to see how you know we've loved for so many years to talk about simplicity and passive and it's all about ease of understanding and um etfs coming to market today are much more complex Uh, i think the era of that easy you know playing traditional beta is pretty much tapped out and the derivatives we're waiting at four i think changed the game a little bit too so almost everything uh, that comes to the white label business today has some component of derivatives used And, you know, it's timely because if you think about why we use derivatives, it's either to protect on the downside, it's either to generate income in a difficult income market, things that are current conditions. So all this product innovation is looking to this, you know, easier use of derivatives thanks to the new rule uh, and ways to to deliver these results that, that investors are looking for. So a lot of these tests are much more complex than they used to, which just tells you that, you know, the due diligence is just getting harder and harder. But it's definitely the era of the bells and whistles, uh, not, no longer the era of the simple is best for sure. Um, the, the other things we see that are kind of fun to watch is we talked a lot about the, you know, we had the whole era of the bring your own assets, you know, the JP Morgans and, and the Goldman bringing their own assets and finding immediate success. Uh, I think that the new wave of that is what I call the bring-your-own-following, the BYOF, and it's the influencer-type linked ETFs. So it's, uh, you know, all the – if you look at Twitter, you know, all the the fuss over the Kramer ETFs or, uh, you know, on Tidal, they have the Nick Kevin ETFs, and there's Y'all, uh, the, the ETF with with Adam Curran, who's a radio show host. Um so it's this idea of, in the absence of bring your own assets, if you bring your own following, hopefully they convert to dollars. So we're seeing a lot of that kind of, of movement. So it's kind of fun to, to. I'm really curious actually to see who's going to, whose influence is really going to show to have some muscle behind it. So I think it would be kind of fun to watch that. And, and the, the last thing I'd say is active. I mean, almost everything—more than 80% of everything that comes today to the white-label providers—is active management. Uh, it's rare to get passive funds anymore because it's everybody's looking for. You have to be innovative. You have to stand out, and is really trying to capitalize on what you believe is your own expertise that nobody else has. So it's that kind of you know entrepreneurial story of I bring to the table something nobody else has, and it's really the time for active right now.
2: I love your comment by the way on the finfluencer ETFs, the uh the bring your own following. <laughs> uh, I think you I think I think you, you all coined that, but yeah, the whole key there is does that uh, social following actually translate into assets? And and that is always something that's fun to watch, especially when you see these uh these huge personalities launching ETFs. Uh Cynthia, we only have like a minute left. If you had to uh, boil it down, what do you see as the keys to success for a new ETF? What, what do you think it comes down to?
1: So we, we like to, to call it every ETF needs to meet what we call the necessary conditions uh, to succeed. And I think number one, which is true of anything in the world, is does your product solve a problem? If you are actually solving, your idea is actually solving an investor problem that they have today, then you are more likely to succeed than not. Uh, the second thing um, is capital. It's, it takes a lot of money to run an ETF, and if you think about how an advisor you know, may not touch a product until he has two or three years of performance, that means you, the provider, have to be able to financially support that product, uh, assuming no asset growth from outside. So that means you're, you know, talking about $200,000, $250,000 a year that you have to be able to support that product for, you know, two to three years. And uh, seed is key. Uh, And a fund under $20 million in seed is much less likely to find a following among the advisors than something 25 or above. So you can start a fund today with $1 million, but chances are you're not going to find attraction. So... See this key capital to support is key. Does it solve a problem is key. And then have a good infrastructure in place. I mean, as you know, the ETF ecosystem has so many moving parts. So many people touch every single product. And you really need excellence in every part of that process to make sure your trading is the best, your execution is the best, your marketing is the best, your distribution is the best, your portfolio management is the best. So getting, you know, excellence in in every touch point in the the product life cycle is is key to success as well.
2: Well, Cynthia, so much fun this week. You are one of the best in the business at covering this stuff. So great to have you back on the pod. Thank you for uh, joining me and uh, hope to see you down at Exchange.
1: Yeah, I'll see you there, Nate. Thanks for having
2: me. That was Cynthia Murphy, Director of Research for the ETF Think Tank. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by George Noble, founder and CEO of Noble Impact Capital. He's gonna spotlight the Noble Absolute Return ETF, ticker NOPE, and then both Tracked Insights, Robert Yeager, and the New York Stock Exchange's Mo Sparks will discuss ETF Central, a brand new ETF data and information platform. Until then, have a great week, everyone.